Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As those of you who tune in regularly are aware, the Business Creators Radio Show follows my laptop lifestyle. And where do you go with your laptop? Where are you when you have those encounters, those meetings, those private masterminds, conversations, where you get those inspirations, those ideas, those aha moments that move the meter forward? Is there a bird chirping in the background? Is there a car on the road in the distance? Are you at an outdoor cafe? Is there ambient noise coming from the next table? These are the places where the magic happens. And so many productivity coaches, so many leadership coaches will tell you that if you want to get inspired, get the hell out of the office. That's why we are today broadcasting from our high-tech studio, which also happens to be my sumptuous balcony here in beautiful Las Vegas, known to some, at least me, is the hottest city in America. And what we're going to be discussing today is high-achieving servant leadership. And this is a unique combination that drives true success. So that may sound broad, but I'm going to bring it in for you here, and you are going to love today's guest. His name is Kurt Euler. He's a globally recognized marketer, operator, and speaker. He's built and run businesses from startup to over 500 million annual revenue, assembled teams across six continents, been part of the small team, leading an 880 million IPO, and participated in dozens of acquisitions. He's done so much more. There have been so many other events in his life, and we're going to have him tell you a bit about that. But let me just preface by saying that Kurt and his team have analyzed more than 50,000 real estate websites over each of the past three years, and the agent businesses behind them to identify what works and what doesn't in modern marketing. Some of our listeners have heard me speak of what realtor marketing and real estate marketing sometimes comes down to is that community circular with the back page, and there are 24 headshots all taken in the local family studio, and it's every realtor in that 900-person town, and somehow there's 28 realtors there, and you see their faces all taken behind that same backdrop from the same studio, and every single one of them has listed their, their cell phone number so you can annoy them day or night. Wow. This is actually what got me excited about Kurt Euler and having him on here. Cause I know that we have a contention of realtors and real estate investors and people who get involved in the whole house thing, as I like to call it, tuning in for that slight edge. What is here is actually for everybody, but this is also for you. Kurt Euler, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Adam. 
as you have picked up, this is a, pe- a topic of which I am fairly passionate. Before we get into it, and I know you have some great insights, not only for real estate agents, but entrepreneurs and creators at large. What we like to do here, I read off a piece of your official bio. It's so impressive. I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be here myself. And this is my show. I mean, 880 million IPO. I haven't touched that yet. Yet. I'm on my way to it, but I'm not there yet. Anyway, tell us a bit about your journey and your own experiences. Something that's happened with you, something you discovered along the path to where you have come and are now serving your community market and audience from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. I wouldn't say it's as much brilliance as it is. I, I've stumbled my way to, uh, to find success. I've, I've failed so many times. Most people would crawl underneath the table and die. Um, so, but yeah, I started when I, uh, my first two legal entities when I was 14, I've always kind of been a, a business, a business person and an entrepreneur at heart. Um, but I've been blessed through, uh, many decades to work with some of the largest companies in the world. And uh, that's allowed me to, uh, to moonlight and in many cases invest in everything from solo entrepreneurs to dozens of startups and, um, and, and help uh, at this point now over the last almost five years, uh, tens of thousands of real estate agents and realtors, as you mentioned, um, kind of grow their businesses. And, um, you know, it's, it's I, one of the things I like about real estate, I've worked in so many different industries is um, I find real estate is kind of mentioned like with the circulars. It's almost the, one of the truest forms of, uh, of entrepreneurship today. Yeah, I believe so. I know so many folks in the entrepreneurial space, whether it's the business coaching space or the mark or the product creation space. I've even seen people who are involved in the product launch space. And they also happen to be realtors. They also happen to buy and sell yeah. houses. It's- yeah, it's, and it's amazing how many how many uh, agents I talk to that are that are. I mean, they're 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 doing great business even as a real estate agent. You know, they may be doing 80, 120, even one hundred and fifty uh, transactions a year, and yet um, they have a oh, well, let me tell you about this uh, you know SaaS product I'm building on the side, or let me tell you about this coaching business that I'm starting over here. And I, I, I find that uh, those agents that have found success. It's, it's hard to keep them contained in front of a TV watching Hulu or Netflix. Yeah, that is the thing. Now, it's just like having a laptop lifestyle type business like I have, in my estimation, is the stereotype we have of the, we'll just use realtor just so we can say this in one word. Uh, they, the stereotype you have of them or the image you have of them based on connotational evidence is the person who's rushing about in their SUV that has a backseat piled high with flyers and equipment and boxes of keys. Their smartphone is literally grafted onto their ear and they have somebody riding along with them who they're trying to show a house to, while at the same time they're trying to get to the next house and the next client. And somehow they're finding some way of keeping all their paperwork organized so that they have the right people signing the right things. It's magic how that happens. And yet you wonder where's the rest of the time for their life because they seem to be doing that 24 seven. Then you scratch the surface one layer more and you find out that actually they tend to have a lot of other things going on. You mentioned, Hey, uh, you know, I've sold 120 houses this year. But let me tell you about this SaaS I'm developing. That's not unusual. I run into this. I'll be 
at a lounge where I hang out. It'll be Saturday afternoon, even Saturday evening. And uh, I'll have my laptop out and I'll hear these people saying, man, what are you doing working on Saturday night? Don't you have a life? And do, do you, do, your clients, do you want them to know that all you ever do is work? And I will put down my hands, look up over the screen of my laptop, set my jaw firm, and I'll say, I'm not working. I'm on Tinder organizing a date with your wife. <laughs> this is this is this is how you know I have real friends because you can only get away with saying that the certain right, right. people. But I and I say that for pattern interrupt value for our listeners because what I want you to understand is the beautiful part of this is you don't have to work according to a nine to five. You know what I'm doing during a lot of the nine to five? Not starting my day till like eleven. Uh, right. taking an hour off because I just feel like it running my errands now instead of this evening because, Hey, there's no lines. If something happens and my tooth goes into root canal mode, I could potentially have my, have my, uh, what you might call it. The, uh, the nerves, those nerves could be nerves could be drilled out, refilled, and I could have my first Vicodin by three o'clock this afternoon. Rest yeah, I mean, I, to Rest your point, I mean, I, I took a 10 a.m. Uh, 10 a.m. call uh, today with my team while I was walking my three year old uh, on a mile and a half walk through the neighborhood because he needed to get some energy out. Uh, yeah. Couldn't do that if I was having to show up at an office or, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an agent, but if I was a realtor, if I was having to go on a showing right then instead. Hey, I built. You know, I have a lifestyle that, uh, and work with a company that gives me that flexibility to uh, to to do some personal things while I'm, you know, still working and, and have that flexibility. All right, I want to just create a bit of a framework here through storytelling about the meaning of fe- what I call the true meaning of freedom. Uh, yeah, I work when other people don't, and I don't work when other people do. I zig when other people zag. Uh, you know what that really means for me? I don't spend a lot of time waiting in lines. Right. That's what it really comes down to. <laughs> so uh, this is going to, what we're going to discover, discuss here is going to jump across a few different categories of conversation. I know there are several points you ran by me in the green room, but first of all, let's start with defining our terms. Uh, you talk a lot about high achieving servant leadership. So what is that and why is it becoming a great way to scale companies of all sizes? Yeah, uh, great question. I, I mean, a, a lot of people are familiar with servant leadership, although even then, I think there's some some misunderstandings about what it is. I mean, at the highest level, servant leadership just begins with the idea that, you know, instead of, you know, taking management and leadership from authority, uh, that leadership should instead flow from empathy and understanding. Um, that, you know, th- there's not a separation between, you know, uh, business and personal. It's, hey, you, people may work for you, you may work for people, but it's like, what happens in their personal lives, who they are as individuals, um, has a, is directly, you know, affecting them at work and how you treat them at work affects their family and supports their family. Um, and so, but a lot of times people take that servant leadership approach because, and and I mean, I, I, I am a person of faith that come from that background, but but people will take take servant leadership because, they feel like it's just the right thing to do. It's how you should should treat people. And, and while I believe that's true, I've been very successful and had some incredible mentors that that are way more successful than I have. And um, and, and I, I talked to them and I, I asked them, like, why have you, why have you taken on the service leadership approach? And they're like, because I like making money and my investors like making money. And 
if you treat people harshly and through authoritative, they'll work for you for a week or two or a month or two, but they'll flee you. Um, and he is like, but so when you combine high achievement, goal oriented uh, approach to business with servant leadership, you end up with people. And my, I like to phrase it. I'm looking for people that aren't just going to willing to go to go to battle with me. I need people to go to war with me. I mean, we're building companies that are changing industries. We've done it before. We're doing it again now. Um, you have to treat people right uh, to make that happen. I love what you just said. You're not looking for people to go to battle with you. You're looking for people to go to war with you. I have said this so many times on so many episodes when we're talking about corporate situations, because I've been there myself, the kiss of death for an organization is when you go up to your employee's cubicle. And that right there, I I could just stop right there. Their cubicle. (laughs) What the hell are you doing to these people? Anyway. And you open up their drawer. Uh, Wait, you're in their drawer when they're not there. Oh, another kiss of death. But let's get to the coup de gras. You open it up and you see a printed copy of their job description. It looks like it's been restapled twice. The one corner's kind of folded. It's got a couple coffee ring mug stains on it. And it's a little bit wrinkled. You know what's happened there? This is somebody who tried several times to go above and beyond. And were reminded of their relative values a human being due to their position on something called an organizational chart. Or we're told something like one time I was actually told that if I say the world is round and, a, and somebody in senior management says the world is flat, not only do I have to tell them they're right, but apologize for saying the world is round. Do that to somebody enough times. And they get that job description pointed, printed out. That means two things. That means Every time you ask them to do something, they're checking to see if it's on that job description before they do it. It's number one. Number two means they're using as a guide to fill in the recent work experience on job applications online. Yeah, I mean, when that, when that job description is printed out, you're done. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, and and, all, and they're doing the bare minimum as well. And it, and it's often you as a leader that 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 force them into that position. Yep. Um, I mean, I. I want to hire people that have a bias towards action and let them know I'm hire, I'm hiring you, Adam, to do a specific role, but there are tons of jobs to be done. And, and by all means, as long as you've, as long as you've, you know, completed and hopefully excelled at the role I brought you in at, like pick up, you know, go look at the pile of things in Trello that need to be done and either pick up something new or ask anybody and any team, can you help them? Or, hey, I have a different idea about how to do this. And, and by all means, people have the flexibility, you know, right. when you come with a servant leadership approach, hey, I may, be, I may be done. I've hired people on my teams that, you know, I hire them for a job and they actually are way better than I thought. And it may be 11 a.m. on a Tuesday and they're done with what I gave them for the week. And so last thing I want to that person to be shopping on Amazon or visiting Facebook, I want them to have the flexibility that says, hey, how you get ahead is you ask how you can help. And, and don't feel like you need to come to me as the boss to go to, to do that. Either pick up something on the project management tool or just go ask somebody else, how can you help them? And then like, by all means, I want to know when you've scored some points, but don't feel like I need to be the bottleneck approving things. Yeah, they're all very key things. Now, as you've worked, Kurt, with teams of all sizes and cultures, what have you learned and, and how has it influenced the evolution of your leadership style over time? Um, I've learned a lot of things. A lot of times, you know, I've, I've, I've learned what, you know, 
what I don't want to do. So it's like when, you know, on, you know, some of it's on my own website, but it's like on the company I work with um, full time showcase IDX, like I've written out with, with, by talking with the other leaders, like very specific cultural traits. And it's like, and, and there's a lot of them. And sometimes I hear that from people like, you can't have like 20 different things that you're hiring people. It's like they had like who they have to be. And I'm like, sure I can. Some of them overlap, but I mentioned like bias towards action be because I've worked with people before that will sit there, uh, sit on their hands until you come and tell them exactly what to do. So I'm a lot of times, like I, I believe in being very transparent and telling people up front, here's the type of people that you will work with. And here's the type of people that we want alongside us on a team. We're not a family. I care about families. I care about who you are as an individual. But the best thing I can think about is we're hiring for a professional sports team. And our goal is to build a legacy here. We're not just trying to win this year. We're trying to win, win and change the industry. And that means like I'm looking for people that, another example, I hire for people that have strong opinions, but they hold them op with open hands or loosely. You should come to me saying, hey, Kurt, I see a problem and I think here's a solution. But but you know, but but not be locked into like that's the only way to do that. And I have a whole host of those things that I've kind of written out. And a lot of times it's because I've I've worked with people where when I start to dissect what was toxic about either our working relationship, sometimes them, sometimes how I responded to them, there was like it was the antithesis of this, where I'm like, I don't want to be in that situation again. So I'm looking for people to join the team that meet this specific thing. When I hear the phrase, that's how we've always done it, or we've always done it that way, without even blinking or pausing, I'll say, yeah, and somehow despite that, you're still here. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, to your point, like, that's one of the things, like, I, I have been, you know, immaculately successful before. Do I, do I have to work again? No, I, I really don't. I mean, I work because I, I, for a variety of reasons, my personal mission, and I think that's how you help make the world a better way. But I'm also very open to the fact that I might be wrong, even if that's how I did it. And at a couple of companies we took public or sold, like nothing is immutable. Like it may have been how we did it before. I probably want to talk about why, why I, I want to do it in my approach, but I'm very open to a different approach because to your point, that's the way we've always done it. Or that's the way the industry does it. That's the, that's the easiest way to fail. Yeah. Uh, I love to tell the story and you may have heard this, Kurt. I know a few of our listeners have, but we do get new people. So I want to share it again. There was this guy who noticed that whenever his wife prepared a roast, she always cut off the ends where she put it in a pan. And he asked his wife, why do you cut off the ends of the roast before you put it in a pan? And she said, well, my mom always did it this way. And she said that it allows us to get the juices in. It makes it more tender and gives it a better flavor. Well, a few weeks later, he saw his mother-in-law and he mentioned to his mother-in-law that his, that her daughter, his wife had learned from her to cut off the ends of the roast. And she said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because when you cut off the ends, you get the juices in there It increases the flavor. It makes it more tender, more juicy, makes for a better roast. And, uh, and I've been doing that uh, my whole life. My mother's been doing it her whole life and her parents before her, I think. I don't know. Well, son of a gun, his grandmother-in-law was still alive. They saw her over Thanksgiving. They had a roast there. Grandma-in-law was preparing a roast and he made his way into the kitchen while his grandmother-in-law was preparing a roast. He said, say, you know, my, 
your granddaughter, my wife, she makes her roast the same way. She cuts off the ends of it. So does her mom. And they say that they learned it from you and that it makes the roast tender, more juicy, and gives it a better flavor. Is that really the case? And the grandmother-in-law says, no, Sonny. During the Depression, we couldn't afford a pan that big. It's the only way we can make the roast fit. (laughs) (laughs) The The point being is so many roles and so many ways we've done things up until now are permanent solutions to temporary blips on the radar. And it becomes more about enforcing a role than it does even understanding what it's there for. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and even with that example, I mean, uh, that, you know, for me, one of the things I like to hire for, we look for people is, you know, that, that they believe in healthy conflict. Um, There will always be conflict. And so, you know, being able to approach somebody like in the, in that story, it's like, it's a little confrontational to kind of, to go and ask those questions. Sometimes people, you know, depending on, especially depending on the toxic environments they've worked in before, anytime you ask a question, they maybe feel like they're being challenged, but it's like, you need to have an environment where people feel comfortable, you know, asking questions and receiving questions. Um, If for nothing else, like some cases, there's a different way of doing things, maybe not cutting the end off a roast, but also, how, how am I supposed to grow if I don't know the reason behind why you're, do, you know, why, why you've told me to do something that way? I mean, we can't slow down and nitpick every single thing and walk through every reason that you may be showing me, Adam, how I, why I need to, to do a certain thing on a project. But if I'm going to grow as somebody on your team, it, the why may be actually much more important than the specific thing you're telling me to do. They say these millennials, these goddamn millennials are so freaking lazy. And it's funny, they keep mentioning millennials, even though they're all these other generations around. You got your, your Gen Zers and your uh, Gen whatever it is right now. And I think there's a couple others. It's hard for me to keep track of them. I myself am on the tail end of Gen X. I was born in 1976. Give it three or more years, I'd have been a millennial. See, millennials aren't lazy. They're just the first generation that had access to the internet while they were growing up. So they were able to gain information that challenges the narratives that have been handed down from generation to generation, they therefore broke the cycles, armed with this knowledge and armed with an awareness that they can make the world a better place by being part of it. They simply ask to have opportunities to do meaningful work. Uh, Absolutely. And I mean, yeah. And, 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 you know, most of them, they, they're wanting to grow. And so, I mean, I, I've worked with and come in and, you know, coach people, you know, that, are, that, that own and, are run fa- and run factories to people that literally are running billion dollar, you know, knowledge based companies. And in both cases, people are wanting to grow. That could be grow personally. It could be, you know, it could be just grow and do their individual job and not wanting to, you know, be promoted or anything. But it's like they, they want to know what they're doing is meaningful and why. And in some cases that meaningful is you know, it, it is sweeping the floors and that that's a highly important job, um, you know, because without that, like the factory doesn't function. And so, you know, they want to be treated with respect while they're doing a critical role. Yeah. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that has permeated back upward along the line. So you want to throw out something like, okay, boomer, or mock somebody for being Gen X or what have you. Well, you know, the Gen Xers and the boomers that are still in the workplace, although they are basically the minority at this point, from millennial downward, 
is now the majority, which, which makes sense seeing where things are going. Um, and you have your boomers, they're still in the workforce. You have your Xers that are still in the workforce and in the entrepreneurial space. And they're now saying, hey, wait a minute. I want my work to be meaningful too. And you know what? Come to think of it, this idea of, of my value as a human being and my ability to be believed being determined by my position on an organizational chart and clocking in exactly at nine and clocking out exactly at five and taking exactly one hour for lunch and answering my phone on the second ring and replying to all emails within, what? I'm not doing that. I want to do meaningful work. I still got time to make a difference here. I want to make a difference. I want to know that the stuff that I do every day is helping somebody, that it's toward a goal, that it's meaningful. I mean, I, I, I agree with much of that. I mean, but I think that, you know, that comes that comes from leadership. There, there are many roles that do require that you show up at 8 a.m. in the morning or 9 a.m. in the morning. Well, yeah, I get that. I get that. But but often people don't approach it that way. I mean, I, you know, I'm amazed that, you know, I can, I can go to the, you know, every, you know, franchise, fast food restaurant, you know, is different, you know, especially if it has different owners, but I can go to my, go to the average Wendy's and, um, gosh, a lot of people just don't look happy to work there. Sometimes I'll get a good experience, but that's rare. I go to a Chick-fil-A or I go to a Five Guys, uh, you know, a little bit higher end burger place. And man, people are smiles. They greet me when I come in. And I'm like, wow, like both of the, like all of these establishments are hourly jobs, but it's like some people seem happy to be there. And, you know, and, and to your point, like people, I think when they show up, they, they often realize too, like they're treated differently by leadership. Um, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm amazed at things where it's like, hey, the, the most important people I often find, like company you mentioned in uh, my intro, we, we ended up taking public. We ended up later selling it for $8.1 billion. Great uh-huh. return for investors. I mean, some of us did okay, but not like the investors did. But it's like, who were the most, who were the, probably the, some of the most valuable people that I saw in the company? Like our software engineers were important. My sales teams, my marketing teams were important. It was my facilities team because- if, if they didn't open up the doors, if they didn't keep things clean, if they didn't, if the front yeah. office manager, if she didn't show up on, on time, like everything fell apart and they felt, they felt that, that, that weight of their jobs where it was like, yeah, you may not be getting paid what a, what, what, you know, a, a data scientist earns, but your job is critical to the rest of us being able to perform ours. And so we treated them that way. Yeah. If you want to discuss Wendy's, I worked in one for four and a half years. It was basically my college job. Uh, and the store I worked at was designated as a training store, which means that all the manager trainees came through our store to do their training. Okay. Now, for those of us who had worked there for a long time and the managers who were part of the regular team there, we had a way of doing things that worked. But then you'd get these you'd get these uh, fire under their ass, hot shots, something to prove, junior assistant manager trainees that would all of a sudden begin instructing somebody who knew their job better than this manager trainee on how to do their job and pull out rule books and guidebooks. Oh, yeah, we love that. We'd do it, follow it right to the letter and then just watch everything fall apart. Watch, watch, watch the shift hour projections go over, uh, watch the overtime get clocked, uh, watch the service times at the drive-through window just plummet. 
because uh, because hey, uh, Mister uh, uh, Assistant uh, Assistant Manager in Training here uh, thinks he knows more than us with his rule book. I even had one of these. And some of the assistant managers in training actually were very good. I don't want to say all of them. Some of them went on to become excellent. And I think a couple of them are still involved with Wendy's and run their own stores at this point. So some of them are good. Be it occasion, get those ones and think, oh, I, I am a manager trainee and I know everything because I have this book. And one of them said, what do you think you know more about me? I said, I said, yeah, I know everything about this job and you know nothing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So... I bring that up because you mentioned the facilities people. And the bottom line is when it comes to a restaurant, the people on the line who serve the customers, who prepare the food, who make sure that the stuff actually works, will sink you if they do not feel that they're treated properly. They will make you a superstar if they feel they're being treated properly and given opportunities. I, yeah, and I think, you know, that that's one of the things where, you know, you have to treat people well, but also when you, when we don't in so many companies, I you know, we spoke briefly, you know, early on about like, you know, real estate agents, realtors. It's like, I think so many people end up gravitating towards, uh, towards the industry because they've worked in toxic environments, whether it's fast food or big corporate America yeah. or small retail shops. And they've had poor they've had poor leaders above them that haven't made them feel valuable. And I mean, starting a business is hard. You have to have capital. It's hard to do a lot of things. You have to have training if you want to become an accountant. Like there's all sorts of these things. But one of the easier ones to get into, anyways, is real estate. And I think that's why a lot of people gravitate towards that. And frankly, why I see end up seeing a lot of people like really succeed because. They what what drove them out of some of the toxic environments they were in was because they knew there was a different way to treat people. And 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 when they moved into something like real estate, it gave them a relatively easy door to get into. And that it really just mattered how much they worked and how, you know, and how they treated other people. And as long as then, you know, you you, you do well by your clients, you can grow a like generational changing wealth in real estate. And you can't just decide, Hey, I'm going to be an accountant tomorrow and decide to like go start working on taxes for somebody. It doesn't work that way. Well, I mean, yeah. And you and I both know that to work in real estate, like if you're licensed or what have you, yeah, you have to take examinations and you actually have to know the industry. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, cause in order to sell a house, you have to, you have to be able to quote statistics, uh, neighborhood demographics, trends, market indicators. You have to know that off the top of your head. Right. Uh, however, being immersed in it, facilitates and accelerates that. Great. Absolutely. But to your point, it's much different than oh, being an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or even an IT professional. Uh, there's candidly, it's uh, it, it's one thing to understand charts and graphs uh, that indicate pricing trends in a neighborhood than it is to understand how to code. Two different things. Yes. And, and well, each, and, each of them, each of them great in their own way. I'm just saying two different things. Oh yeah. And, and real estate's not immune to, you're uh, not immune to some of the things we talked about. I mean, yeah. you know, I, you know, for, for, you know, I know you know this and you know, many of your listeners in real estate know this, but it's like most of the population, I think they don't realize that like the, like almost all agents in America are, are 1099 contractors. And that's yes. why it's like, 
you know, the average agent changes brokerages every five years. And it's not always the brokerage, it's often the team or, you know, the franchise that they're in. And so, you know, so, so they'll change brokerages because like they're wanting to serve clients and serve clients and, and they're usually running up against something that's either sometimes red tape or it's just not the environment they're wanting to be in. And as long as you can, and to your point, as long as you can immerse yourself in it and you know your stuff, you're, you're not locked into your brokerage. So change brokerages then. And then you, often when people find it, like the average is every five years. But when I look at the data from NAR, there's a ton of people that change like, like every like one to two years. And then when they find something that works, they just stay. Wow. I never realized that. I have seen certain realtors jump from one agency or one brokerage to another from time to time. I didn't know there was trending behind that. And NAR, NAR stats say that it's every five years. I, I haven't seen the stats for probably the last eight. I don't think I've seen a stats updated in the last 18 months. So it might've shifted a little bit with COVID, but it was like, it was average of every five years across everybody um, for like three years. And it was six years for the year before that. So yeah. like when you think about like, you know, the, the gentleman who sold my wife and I, our house, Bobby's been with Keller Williams for probably like, I don't know, 15, 18 years. And so it's like, you know, that like, you have a lot of agents that are that way with Remax and EXP and some of the others. And it's like, so there have to, there's a lot of people that are, that are hopping around much faster. Um, and, and the only, I don't have data behind this, but I think it's because when I talk to these people, as I coach them, as I get brought into some of the associations to talk, like, the people that are really trying to, they're either successful and they're doing real transactions or they're trying to get there and they don't know what's holding them back. It's a leadership issue and or they don't feel supported. And so as opposed to it's like when somebody ends up finding a team that supports them, they don't leave because they're the, those coaches, those people will will lead them and grow them and they'll like they'll stay forever. And then they'll end up doing real transactions over time. All right. So let's get a little bit into some of what real estate agents need to know. What are a few things you recommend that they implement into their marketing strategy based on <laughs> your experience? I, we discussed earlier the back cover of the community circular with the 32 headshots <laughs> and that number keeps growing. I think first time I said it was 24 and then I said it was 28. Now we're up to, I think, 36 or something. And each one of those 36 lists their toll-free number with their agency extension and their cell phone number, even though yeah. the former probably rings to the latter, just so you can call them twice. Yeah, I think too many, too many agents, um, they, they, they overcomplicate things. Um, now there's nothing wrong with putting your face on, you know, but on, 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 uh, on, on bus, uh, bus sites and, you know, billboards there. Yeah. That can still be successful. Hey, if but, you don't, I mean, somebody else will. Well, and yeah, somebody else will. And, and usually you can often get a good price on some of those things too, depending on your market. But but fundamentally, I think agents overcomplicate things. What they don't realize is like the average person before they work with an agent, they, they end up vetting three to four agents before they choose who they work with, which is usually one of those three or four. And so like, how do you, how do you get over that? Well, you realize that we're all operating in an influence economy and like, like, Somebody's telling you you should get on TikTok. Somebody says you should work an email. Somebody else says you should do, you know, door knocking within the neighborhoods. That's all okay until something shifts. And like, it really just comes down to, hey, how do you build influence? This is an influence economy. 
And everything, people are buying homes, they're searching online. So you have to have a digital hub. For me, that's a website that your clients will actually use. Because if not, I can guarantee, there's only one certainty in real estate. And that's if you don't have a, uh, you don't have your personal site that, that your clients will actually use, I can guarantee they're going to go to Zillow, Zillow, Trulia, or Redfin. And the guarantee there is that a competitive agent will call them probably within about 45 seconds of them filling out contact information. That's a really hard place to be in. There's no other industry. You're not in you know, financial planning or accounting or lawn care where, hey, if you don't have like certain things on your website that a competitive lawn company will be calling your potential client when they fill out a form. So it's like too many agents just overcomplicate things and they're like, oh, I got to get a TikTok account going. Well, maybe you do, but maybe you don't because that may if that's not who you are, I don't want to change your behavior. I want to help you build influence where you're already at and just funnel them back to kind of what should be a digital hub for you. And so then when Facebook or Instagram or TikTok changes their algorithms, your business didn't die overnight because there's an algorithm change. You still have a place that people are used to going to and connecting with you. I've been told the business creators radio show should have a video component uh, because, oh, it creates so much more engagement and you're missing out. It's like, look, I I was actually there when the, not literally in the room, but I was already in business when the term podcasting was coined. And it refers to the iPod, which was an audio device. It got bastardized once they did away with Flash and everybody could access online video and create it. So... But you know what the bottom line is? You want to know the real reason why the Business Creators Radio Show doesn't have a video component and why you and I are not sitting on webcams right now? Why? I don't feel like it. (laughs) I I do not want to sit here and hold a media pose for an hour. I do not want to be cognizant of what my backdrop looks like. I do not want to have to be at a certain place at a certain time if, let's say, I feel like stepping out for a few hours, but I know i got to grab one of these interviews I want to know that I could just duck into some quiet place that has good Wi-Fi and do it. See, I, I, I mean, there's a little bit of me that's like, uh, like I both love what you're saying and also it also feels like that you've set a very high bar. Like it's completely okay with me if you don't want to do video. But also I don't think most people nowadays care what your backdrop looks like. Like I'm not watching NBC Nightly News because I'm, I'm wanting to hear your podcast and see the backdrop. Like, Hey, I have a nice backdrop I've thought through like here, but, but to your point, like I've been cleaning out the, uh, the closet in my office. So if we had our camera on, you'd see some boxes and a bunch of like, you know, stuff. I I think we've a lot of time, a lot of us, like we hold up thinking it has to be perfect versus like, okay, it can just be on there. But, but like, that's where too many people, I think in their digital marketing, whether it's what you and I do, or, you know, talking to, talking to realtors where it's like, they feel like it has to be perfect. And I'm like, no, you just have to, you just have to start with where you're at. And it's like, that's okay. Like I consume a ton, uh, like hours and hours, dozens of hours on a weekly basis on YouTube of people talking commentary on the Halo TV series or some political thing or some religious thing. But I like, they may actually have a video to your point of sitting in a studio or sometimes sitting on their porch, but I'm actually usually not watching them. Like I may be driving and it's actually my phone's down in the seat next to me and it's playing like a podcast. Every once in a while it may be on, but it's like, so if there's a video or not, it actually doesn't matter. Um, I actually really respect, there's some of the podcasts I listen to where it's not on app, uh, you know, on iTunes, I'm listening to it on on YouTube 
where it's just a picture of like yep. a static picture that doesn't change for the hour long that I'm listening to the commentary. Yep. That's one of the strategies for organic content multipurposing. If you're starting with somebody, something that's audio only, you either put it up against a still image or buy yep. some, buy a loop of uh, royalty free imagery and just have it play on a loop. Yeah, that's it, it, all you're doing is just making audio fit onto YouTube or Rumble or Vimeo, whatever it is. Doesn't matter what it looks like. In fact, I've seen studies that have shown that the only way you really can piss a lot of people off is if you have asynchronicity between words being spoken and the lips of the person who's allegedly speaking them. No, I could see that. I that's like that. that's like that's like the one thing you can do to alienate people. Outside of that, it's pretty much golden as long as your sound is really good yeah i i I find i find like you know too much of digital marketing where people end up feeling stuck because they either feel like it has to be perfect or there's a blocker and they haven't sat down to think through how could i just remove that block by myself like we were talking you know talking about you know realtors like okay you should have a website well you should also have like a look you know dozens of local community pages about specific areas in your town or property types or different niches you help okay well i find most agents actually they for whatever reason it like they could tell me about a neighborhood i live in roswell georgia in a neighborhood called bristol oaks they could tell me about roswell or bristol oaks as a neighborhood for five minutes for either one of them without even blinking they could think about it. But if I asked them to put words on a page and said, I'll give you a hundred dollars and you put words, words on a page within an hour, they could, they, they would, they feel frozen. An hour later, you're still going to have the blank word document. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm like, okay, I'll give you a thousand dollars. If you put the words on the page, most of them will still be stuck. If on the other hand, I said, Hey, can you just give me, send me a voice note or like leave me a voicemail that tells me why I should live in Bristol Oaks and Roswell. They'll leave me an eight minute message. That would be wonderful content. Okay. We'll do that and send the voice note to a freaking VA or somebody you found on Upwork, and they'll put the words on a page, send it to rev.com, pay a dollar a minute. So your $8 message will end up turning into, you know, a, a great little piece. You've done your website then. Like, that's an easy way to get unblocked. But, but if you don't sit down and go, what is holding me back from like, I could tell you about this, but I won't actually put words on a page. Like, that's where we overcomplicate things. And a lot of times the overcomplicating is just, Hey, us as individuals, we're weird, creature, weird creatures that have emotions. Figure out why you're stuck and move past it. All right. So we've discussed getting this website up and we've discussed uh, Zillow and application forms and everything else. So what overall should a real estate agent's website have or do so their clients actually use it instead of going to Zillow? I <laughs> think there are some obvious answers to this, but I think we got a few zingers in here. So I'm going to turn you loose. Yeah, so, I mean, the, at the, the highest level, and it's going to seem really basic, but there needs to have a real a, a bio that tells me why I should care about you as an agent. So I, the example, I, I have two examples I love to give about on the residential side. One is the gentleman, Bobby, who helped my wife and I buy our home. Does Bobby help singles buy condos in Roswell? No. Does Bobby help, you know, retired couples downsizing? No. Bobby helps couples in their late 20s to early 40s, usually with kids or soon to have a family that are buying uh, buying single family homes in Roswell, Georgia or East Cobb. That's who he helps. Now, if he helped me sell a home, buy that home and now something's changed and I'm moving out and now I'm going to go buy a condo, he'll refer me out on the condo 
and it'll help sell my home to somebody just like me 10 years beforehand. That's that when if you go to a website that says that I met an agent in a uh, in a midsize city uh, city uh, it was not Chicago but we use Chicago. Who, who do you help? Uh, he helped he helped singles buy high rise co- uh, condos in downtown Chicago. Like hands down, like who do, like you know does that person add value to you or not? So when somebody is is vetting you against other agents, they know should you work with that person or not. It's also great for referrals because your clients will refer you three to eight times more when you have a tight definition of who you actually are and who you help. Isn't and that most- funny? Isn't that funny? Oh, you, will actually, you will actually get people who say, yeah, I know, I know that you help people buy condos in downtown Chicago. I'm actually looking for a, somebody to help me buy a ranch house in Cicero. Right. Who do you know? They're actually more likely to contact that downtown Chicago condo seller to ask them for a referral than they are to drive over to Cicero and see who's working. Yeah. And it's so much more meaningful. It's so much more meaningful than I just love helping people buy their next home. That's generic. Anybody can do that. So if if you're generic, it doesn't build influence and people don't care. Um, And so your website has to be very clear about who you add value to. And by that, it's also excluding who you don't add value to. Hey, if you're helping that person buy single family homes or singles buy condos in downtown Chicago, you don't help people, you don't help investors flipping homes. That's a different type of person. Um, And so you're going to ask different questions. And the other thing, which is going to seem very basic, but most everyone gets this wrong, is it has to have a home search that consumers actually use. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm at this company that um, that I've been at for so many years here is because like it's the only home search that somebody can go build like a WordPress website that consumers actually choose over Zillow. There's there's others wow. where it's like you may capture the lead, and so you may you may have you know ranked in Google, or you might have paid ten or twenty dollars for a pay per click to get a lead. So you capture the lead, and there might be a ninety to ninety five percent loss where people will still go use Zillow. Again, then that competitive agent is calling you. What you want is you want to make sure that your clients are staying on your site because could you imagine trying to grow like a CPA firm where it's kind of gave the example where it's like, what if 90% of the people that filled out your lead form on your website, 90% of them are getting called by a competitive CPA. Real estate's the only thing that has that, but yet agents don't think through that. Or, and with that, maybe even your brokerage gives you a really good tool, but Think about that stat that we mentioned before, that I on average, was. five years, you change brokerage. So if my website is kurtuler.kw.com, and now I move to EXP or Remax, I've lost my brand equity, and I have to rebuild from over. As opposed to, it's not Remax's business, it's not Keller's business, it's Kurt Euler's business. And so the brokerage is a very important piece, but I need to have a website that I control, that I chose the tech stack on, exactly. not my exactly. brokerage. Exactly. So KurtEuler.com. And right. you don't and like and I follow that you don't want to add KW like Kurt Euler, Keller Williams, because then what if you leave Keller Williams and go somewhere else? Uh then yeah, you can continue to own the domain, oh, but yeah. all you're gonna be doing is tearing down your Kurt Euler KW.com website and redirecting it to your Kurt Euler CB for Caldwell Banker, uh, for example. Oh, uh, yeah. you you are essentially rebuilding your brand equity 
And even yeah. if you create like a like a one for one recreation of the pages, so you re- recreate the about page, the listing page, the about Kurt page, and everything, and they're all the same forward slash just and forward slash that, and you use a use a sophisticated four hundred four redirect strategy. Still, but I can't even do four hundred four redirects because once I've left my brokerage, they control the domain. So because they think, control- yeah, that 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 that's what I mean. That, that's yeah. what I mean. If you have your own. Even right. if you do Kurgul or KW, right. you're going to have to go through all that just to get oh, you yeah, Kurgul yeah. or CB, which yeah, is why the best I love thing, your yeah, approach. A great example of this is, is uh, redwagonteam.com. His name's uh-huh. Jay Valento. He, uh-huh. uh, he, he he does real estate in Long Beach in Southern California. Man, you go to Jay's website. And, I'm on it. Uh, again, redwagonteam.com. You look at it and yeah, you'll see a little logo that he's with Keller. I don't yep. even know if he was with Keller when I first started, when I first got to know him. Man, his website, it like it one, it has local community pages. So he's been investing in uh, over time for all these little areas, different types of condos, different, different niches he works with. But then he adds value on those pages as well. And so yep. it's like if you're an agent, or sorry, if you're a, you're a consumer and you are looking for a condo near a beach. And it's Jay's got a website, got a page on the site about it. You know right away, like it's not like he's on some he's not some generic agent. Like he knows about that area because there's local imagery. He's written local content about that page, yeah. and 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 like you also know who he doesn't work with then. And then like he to your point, like he's done some videos and he's done and, and then he just has a lot of written content. Like hey. I could search by myself if I don't want to engage with somebody. There's also really clear that says, hey, here's a video where he walks through and says, if you need something custom and he's talking through, here's how I would help you. And that's a perfect example of what an agent website should look like. Yeah. And if this guy were to go from, say, Keller Williams to Caldwell Banker, mostly what he's got to do is change that logo. Uh, and everybody updates their logo every couple of years anyway, and right. do a, and I don't know if this is WordPress or what it is. I haven't had a chance to look at the source code, but like, say, for example, if it is WordPress, you can do a simple internal search straight from the WP admin control panel and just find, just do search for Keller Williams yeah. and then go right, click, edit, right, click, edit, right, click, edit, right, click, edit, and change all those to call world banker. You're done in 10 minutes. Right. And it, and it should be, it should be WordPress. So while we talked about like the, the, the core things, like, it, it needs to have a bio that actually says who you work with and who you don't. Your site needs to have a home search that, you know, your clients will actually use. And so um, by all means, if, you know, if you're not using Showcase IDX, which is who I'm with, like put up whatever you're working with and send it to 20 people and ask, give them permission to give you raw feedback and see what their responses are. But, but then yeah. like underneath those things, like yeah, good luck building a site that, that, that Google will like, that's not on WordPress. The large, yeah. some of the largest even brokerage sites run on WordPress and it's for a reason. It's like, there are things that look really pretty like Webflow and Wix and Squarespace, but but the home searches don't integrate with that. And, so, and those that do, they work on subdomains or iframes and Google's smart enough to know the difference, which is why, yeah, I mean, I know the agents that have spent six figures in a year trying to rank a site on Squarespace and they get beat out by somebody, by, by an agent that spends like just sweat equity building a WordPress site with Showcase. Uh, I, I built my own eponymous website uh, in two sittings a couple of weeks ago because I, I wow. rebuilt my eponymous website, adamhomie.com, uh, built it myself in two weeks or, or two sittings a couple of weeks ago using WordPress. Uh, there's so much available in themes. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, this is a point I want to make also 
for those of you who are interested in podcasting, because my primary business is working with companies to launch their podcasts, is I hear all the time, but but so-and-so said, if I just put my podcast on iTunes, that I'll get ranked on search engines. And I say, first of all, it's called Apple Podcasts. <laughs> they haven't called it iTunes for freaking years. So already your person doesn't even know the name of the outlet. Second of all, you have absolutely no control over any of these platforms, including their random decision to just cancel you and not even tell you why. Third, you can do nothing on that platform as far as placement of advertising materials for people who pay you, like advertising sponsors, you know, podcast monetization. You cannot do anything with the design. You cannot use the powers that a platform like WordPress has to enable you to infiltrate the primary image, video, and podcast feeds of the major search engines, which within each search engine, like say, for example, Google, you have your main Google SERPs, you have your image SERPs, your video SERPs, and your podcast SERPs, they work together. Right. And and the way you make them work together is how you post your episodes and how you structure content around it. Yeah, most podcasts reach websites look very similar. It's because we have the formula that works. Well, and Adam, you, you said you were able to rebuild a site, your site in just a couple of days. I, that's one of the places where like, I, I know some agents get locked up because either one, they don't want to pay thousands of dollars to build a website. And by all means, a great way to grow your business and whatever you're doing is farming out something you're not good at and paying a realistic value for. Like yeah. if there's nothing wrong with, write, with, with writing a three to $5,000 check for the, you know, for the first year to get a website built and hosted, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Yeah. But, but there's also like, and some agents can build them site, the builder site themselves. And to your point, like if like you might get you might be able to build your real estate site, like with showcase and a theme you buy off of, you know, in bottom marketplace, you might be able to get up and going for like a hundred to $150 for the month. Okay. And then, and then it drops way down for, you know, from then on. But here's the other thing. You, you don't have to do it yourself or pay somebody five grand to do it. I guarantee many of your listeners that are agents, you have a 14-year-old daughter. You have a client that's got a 14-year-old son that can figure this out. And, and, and if, if, it's in your fa- if it's somebody in your family, they, that's part of bringing them into your business and training up that person. And so, yep. you know, hey, tell your daughter what you need. Work with her. Let her see what you're doing in a business. She'll get your website up and going in two or three days. It's a great weekend to help her grow. She gets to see a little bit more about like, you know, what pays for the bills. And, and she also gets a portfolio if that's something she wants to do. Because then she can charge somebody three, three to five K for their website as well. Because she has a portfolio now of your site. Like too many agents try to complicate it by going, well, I can't write the check or I'm not technical enough. That's okay. I guarantee you either have somebody in your family or you have a friend or a client that, you know, you can beg, borrow and kind of plead a little bit to kind of help that out. Because it's like the biggest thing that I think the world is missing today is people that are willing to shepherd and coach the next generation. So it's like, gosh, like I have tons of uh, tons of friends where it's like, if you were willing to spend with your business, you know, you're willing to spend a couple of hours coaching their son or daughter, they'd be like, yeah, it's a safe environment. Please, I would love that. Can I pay you? Yeah, let me, I'm going to tell a story that's going to just help people understand how real this is. I mentioned you earlier, Kurt, uh, during college, I had a part-time job working at, at Wendy's, which I actually, for the most part, enjoyed. And I make references to it in my book, Groundhog Days and Event Not a Business Strategy. In fact, 
for those of you who are familiar with the book and you go and you find the page where I do the dedications, uh, the two gentlemen who were seeming opposites but actually had a lot in common, those were two of the managers at the Wendy's I worked with. So it, I worked at. So let's uh, look in that same time frame. I was in Penn State, at Penn State, as I had a major in political science with minors in history and Middle East studies. I spent a lot of time in, in the computer labs. I'm really dating myself here. Computer labs? Come on. <laughs> I was studying a few things. I was very much into competition auto sound. I had a mad system in my Camaro. So this was the late 1990s when internet marketing was a nascent thing. And I was looking at websites that sold competition stereo equipment for vehicles. I was actually intrigued by the model of how they built those websites and how they did e-commerce so that you could put money into a web page and have something show up on your door through the mail. I thought that was all pretty fascinating. I also uh, spent time in the computer labs looking at porn. Want to know why? Why? Because you were dealing with a highly visual medium that depended on visual attraction to draw in eyes, because mostly internet porn in those days were, were, were picture galleries. So you had to create visuals with a very, I mean, like video cards and what monitors can do compared to now was like one one thousandth of it. And yet you had to work within that very small space and you had to use a physical attraction medium to do it. Furthermore, the, the sites that those were built on were extremely simple. And as soon as I figured out how to view source, I taught myself HTML by just following that source code and rebuilding it. Didn't go to school for it. Right. So between those two things, I needed money for, I mean, I told you I went to Penn State. I needed money for Thursday night. And I was already thinking entrepreneurially, at least some level. Do you know how many of me, of me are around today between the ages of 14 and, say, 21, 22, who would gladly take $1,000, $1,500 to make a real estate agent's dream come true? Oh, a a a absolutely. And, 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 uh, and uh, young men and women in that age, they know WordPress or they can figure it out in an afternoon. They can figure it out. And yeah, that, yeah. that's the easiest thing. It's like, you know, one of the reasons, you know, we have thousands of agents across, you know, hundred plus brokers and teams that you, you use our product. There's just like the, one of the most trafficked pages on our site is just literally like a page that links to like nine or 12 example agent websites. Cause it can look completely different when you're, when you're building a WordPress site. And like, that's one of the things with our technology. So I think a lot of times agents literally just go, I like, I like this part from that site, this part from that site. And can you do a footer that looks like this? That's all somebody needs to know to necessarily build it. Now with that, there's nothing wrong with some with a lot of these agencies that that, that charge good money to build a site because it's going to be a, they're often going to have you know a, a more standard process that's going to ask you the agent questions that will make it easier to build your site to get a bio out of you that's meaningful. But you can do that yourself. You just if you can't technically do it, yeah, like I find find somebody find somebody that this is not what they've done, especially the next generation. And, and help them with that. I mean, I exactly. so often, you know, even in other industries, it's like, 
I, I hear my friends talk about, cause you know, I started kids much, uh, you know, a little bit old, older than uh, a lot of my friends. And it's like, they, they've got teenagers or when their kids are now in college um, had teenagers, like it's so hard to, you know, to get them to do things because they felt apathetic. And I was like, really? Like, like I talked to others and they're, I'm like, how, why are your kids moving ahead? They're like, I gave them hard things to do. I challenged them. So it's like, yeah, I, I, mean, I would, yeah, Kurt, I was fascinated with the website stuff because it wasn't easy. Yeah. I was, I was paying to learn political science and Middle East studies stuff. And I was spending a lot of time in the computer lab figuring out how websites and e-commerce work. Because there's a combination of, I was fascinated by the idea of having streams of income. And I was challenged by it because it wasn't on the surface very easy. Right. It was an accomplishment for me when I was able to take a notepad and use it to replicate HTML code and make changes in it that made words look bigger and change the colors of backgrounds and do different fancy GIFs and right. insert my own pictures and upload that to an FTP and then navigate to a place on a browser and see my own thing appear. Actually, it was very exciting. Yeah. I mean, and that, and that's where it's like, you know, getting the initial website built, that's a huge, a huge initial step for, for, for agents. And then, you know, like, you know, if giving, giving that example of redwagonteam.com, like, you know, he, he's got, you know, as I mentioned Long Beach in, in, in South California. Like he has a page just for Southern California mansions. Another one yep. for retirement living, uh, living I saw, in 55 I saw, plus I saw, places. Yep, imagine, yeah. Imagine, you know, when you challenge, when you challenge your 14 year old daughter that says, Hey, we're, we're going to build this site together. And, and, and what that dopamine is like for them when, Hey, it's now three months later, it's now six months later. And you're ranking for Southern California mansions. Like, that's a that's a huge thing. It's an accomplishment up front, but you get to grow that over uh, as well and show them like, hey, you don't always Son get just instant God. gratification. You do from seeing from to your point, coding something and getting it on the site. But then, hey, I want Google sending me free traffic over time. Well, that takes additional work and it takes perseverance. And so yeah. it's part of part of what I think many many of us as you know entrepreneurs we gravitate towards things where our perseverance and our hard work will will allow us to, to to grow our businesses and like okay well how do you do that with the next generation well exactly. you usually have to do it alongside of them exactly well yeah and having a podcast will accelerate as well through a combination of human and search engine eyes you're not going to believe this kurt we're at the top of the hour we could keep going forever and uh i love this conversation this is so much fun kicking it back and forth with you here uh, what I do want to do for our listeners as we uh, wrap up and get ready to sign off is I do want to direct you to a website I mentioned already, which is www.curtuhlir, which is spelled U-H-L-I-R, so K-U-R-T-U-H-L-I-R.com. And this is where you're going to discover pretty much everything there is to discover about Kurt Euler. You'll discover uh, his public speaking, you'll discover some great resources he has for you and all about how he helps companies build great stories, relationships, cultures, and systems as a keynote speaker and agile marketer. Kurt, how did I do glancing your page and turning your stuff into sentences? Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> yep. So again, serious, serious note, KurtGuller.com. And with that, Kurt Guller, thank you so much uh, for being here today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Yeah. Thank you, Adam, for having me. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. 
Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.